Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by HBO's Crashing, starring Pete Holmes. The new comedy series, co-created by Holmes and Judd Apatow, draws on their experience as comedians, offering a behind-the-scenes look at the unpredictable world of stand-up comedy. Guest stars include Artie Lang, T.J. Miller, Sarah Silverman, and Hannibal Burris. Crashing has just wrapped up its first season, but if you missed any of it, every episode is available on HBO Go and HBO Now. Welcome to Good One, Vulture's new podcast about jokes and those who write them. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox, and each week I have a comedian, comedy writer, or director on to play and talk about one of their jokes. This week's guest is David Litt, who's currently the head writer for Funny or Die's Washington, D.C. office, and whose previous job was writing for the small, little-known act, President Barack Obama. Before that, we actually have a little housekeeping. This is the last episode of the first season of Good One. But don't worry, a second season is coming, and in the meantime, we're going to have bonus episodes. Seriously, like a bunch of bonus episodes. Like, there'll be one next week, and then the week after that as well. Also, there'll be live episodes, and I'll tell you about those. Still, thank you so much to everyone who has listened and rated the show positively on iTunes and tweeted nice things to me. A podcast where I talk to comedy makers about their process has flowed around my little brain for years, so thank you for making me feel not alone for being interested in this stuff. With the finale, I want to do something special and different. I'm curious about jokes in all their forms, and I couldn't think of anyone who has written jokes for a more unusual performer than David Litt. Litt, whose memoir, Thanks Obama, is available for pre-order, wrote a bunch of speeches about taxes and roads and whatever, but also was the point person for Obama's White House Correspondents' Dinner speeches. For this good one, Litt picked a moment from the 2015 dinner, where they had Keegan-Michael Key join the president as Luther, his anger translator character from Key and Peele. It really is a tremendous moment, and I'm excited to play it here. Though, because Key is one of the all-time great comic actors, I suggest you watch the video of the performance on Vulture.com. Obama's not a bad straight man either. Enjoy. Hold on to your lily white butts. In our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents' Dinner are important. I mean, really? What is this dinner? Because despite our differences, we count on the press to shed light on the most important issues of the day. And we can count on Fox News to terrify old white people with some nonsense. <laughs> Sharia law is coming to Cleveland, run for the damn hills. Y'all was ridiculous. We won't always see eye to eye. Oh, and CNN, thank you so much for the wall-to-wall Ebola coverage. For two whole weeks, we were one step away from the walking dead. And then y'all got up and just moved on to the next day. That was awesome. Oh, and by the way, just if you haven't noticed, you don't have Ebola! But I still deeply appreciate the work that you do. and then I plugged it. Remember that? Which Obama's Katrina was that one? Was, it, was that 19 or was it, what, what, was it 20? Because I can't remember. Protecting our democracy is more important than ever. For example, the Supreme Court ruled that the donor who gave Ted Cruz $6 million was just exercising free speech. Yeah, it's the kind of speech like this. I just wasted $6 million. <laughs> And it's not just Republicans. Hillary will have to raise huge sums of money, too. Oh, yeah. 
she gonna get that money. She gonna get all the money. Khaleesi is coming to Westeros. So watch out. The nonstop focus on billionaire donors creates real problems for our democracy. And that's why we're running for a third term! No, 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 we're not. We're not? No. Who the hell said that? <laughs> but we do need to stay focused on some big challenges, like climate change. Hey, listen, y'all, if you haven't noticed, California is bone dry. It looked like a trailer for the new Mad Max movie up in there. Y'all think that Bradley Cooper came here because he wants to talk to Chuck Todd? He needed a glass of water! Come on! The science is clear. The science is clear. Nine out of the ten hottest years ever came in the last decade. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I do know how to count to ten. Rising seas, more violent storms. You got mosquitoes. Sweaty people on the train, stinking it up. It's just nasty. I mean, look at us what, who, look at what's happening right now. Every serious scientist says we need to act. The Pentagon says it's a national security risk. Miami floods on a sunny day, and instead of doing anything about it, we've got elected officials throwing snowballs in the Senate. Okay, okay, Mr. Okay, I, I, I think I got it, bro. I, it is crazy. <laughs> What about our kids? What kind of stupid, short-sighted, irresponsible bull? Whoa, 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 hey! What? what? Okay, no, hey! What? All, all, all due respect, sir, you don't need an anger translator. You need counsel. <laughs> So now I'm, 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 I'm out of here, man. I ain't trying to get into all this. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Luther, my anger translator, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I'm here with the person behind that joke, David Litt. I guess first let's clear what was your official title, especially in 2015. So at the time, I was a uh, special assistant to the president and senior presidential speechwriter. That was that was my official title. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wanted to have you on because I'm interested in different types of jokes and different settings for jokes. And you're obviously writing a very specific, unusual genre of joke for, for the show or in general and for a very unique performer. There's only been about 40-something of similar performers, I guess. So I want to kind of kind of walk through what that even can mean or what it meant for you. So just kind of on a basic, kind of both biographical level, but also sort of like a metaphysical level, you know, what led you to that job or how did you kind of fit into being that person who did that job? So I had intermittently been sort of interested or disgusted with politics when I was in high school or college. I'd always been interested in comedy. And, you know, I was one of those college students who edited a humor magazine and I was in an improv group. And at the time, I was fairly sure we were the best improv group in existence. And um, 
after I finished my junior year of college, I interned at The Onion. And after that internship, I was then sort of casting about trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I saw Obama speak during the primaries. I graduated in 2008. This was in January. And the moment I saw that speech at the Iowa caucuses, I was like, never mind. I want to do whatever he's doing. And so I worked in Ohio as a field organizer on the 2008 campaign, um, moved to D.C. because hope and change, (laughs) and ended up getting an internship at a speechwriting firm that turned into a job at a speechwriting firm where they happened to write jokes for politicians. And so one of the firm's partners, Jeff Nussbaum, who had done the correspondence dinners for Bill Clinton, he'd worked on those. He did a lot of jokes for, you know, all sorts of senators, whatever knew that I had this interest in comedy and said, okay, well, why don't you try pitching some stuff? And so that's how I ended up um, having some experience writing for politicians. Uh, You know, I had pitched a few jokes to the Correspondence Center in 2009 or 2010. And then when I got this White House job, um, I was sort of, you know, one of the people who they thought, okay, he can write jokes. And there aren't that many people who come to the White House with any sort of (laughs) comedy background. So uh, I had a leg up right there. So, I mean, and this is a stupid question because I imagine this is not how it works. But to get the job to be a speechwriter, I imagine Obama is not interviewing you. But like what is involved just generally what is involvement in the hiring process, especially if you're going to be writing his voice? So speechwriting jobs generally are you fill out what they call a writing test. So you do a a blank. It's actually probably not that different than doing a writing packet for a comedy writing job on television. You do a, a speech. They give you a prompt. And you write that. I ended up at a little bit of a circuitous route since I started when I was 24. I started my first job at the White House was for Valerie Jarrett, who was the president's senior advisor. So I ended up writing for senior staff for a year and then moving over to write sure. for the president. So when did you first meet the president? I and first what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell this I tell this story sometimes, but I, I first met the president for at a taping in uh 2011. And um, I don't really remember what it was like because I basically blacked out. So and and then later I learned from other people that that's a fairly common experience or it was a fairly common experience where people would meet him and kind of their brain would short circuit. So I don't feel that bad that that happened to me. And then do you remember the second time you met him? Uh, the second time I I, uh, I met him, I don't re- you know, I don't remember time by time, but I, I tell some of these stories now, yeah. like, um, I don't know if you know the moth. So I've sure. been Telling some of those stories. And there are, you know, I, I can say this much. I didn't black out. <laughs> sure. Since then, you've been able to stay awake while talking to him. Yes, that's right. All right. So because it's such an unusual thing, uh, before you even get to Luther, I want to kind of get through the basics of how this thing is put together. Yeah. Um, so you, you said general for 11 months a year, you're not working on this like at all. Like, do you have a notes? Did you have a notes thing in your phone to be like? Remember, it was essentially like, okay, a month out, you're just starting? A few years, I would try to keep notes running all year long, and then I'd have these weird notes in my phone that are just like, Paul Ryan, zombie? You know, something (laughs) just really dumb. And what I found was, because these are so topical, anything that seems like it's really current, you know, you're like, oh, this is evergreen, and then three weeks later, it's not. So everything that we wrote, even if it was good, four months out and ever made it into the final speech. So we really got going three weeks in advance, maybe three and a half. Yeah, because I mean, essentially, it's like you're doing a very long late night monologue. And it's not like the Oscars monologue where you're like, this is the year in film because and you knew a little bit. But for the most part, 
it's people don't remember. There's so much news, and especially that audience is so up on the news. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we did. Um, I think maybe it was 2014 or 2013, but. There's something about Cliven Bundy, the anti-government Nevada rancher. And I, I reread that recently and could barely remember who that <laughs> yeah. was. At the time, it was huge. You know, it was huge news. And then we just move on. So then how did kind of on a basic level, how does the planning start? Three and a half weeks out, how does how does the planning start? So for us, the Correspondence Center was very unique in that um, every other speech pretty much had one speechwriter. So if I was writing about housing policy, I would write the speech, send it to the chief speechwriter, He'd edit it, send it to the president. He'd edit it. We're done. The Correspondence Center was more like a writer's room where we had a couple of people inside the building who would pitch jokes. We sort of had this Obama diaspora of people who used to work in the White House. So whether that was like John Favreau, who used to be the chief speechwriter, John Lovett, David Axelrod, people who would kind of pitch jokes from the outside. And then we would work with professional comedy writers. So whether that was like big names like Judd Apatow or just like someone I went to school with and happens <laughs> to know is like good at comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, we would solicit jokes from them as well. So the way the process would work, let's say three weeks out, I would just start by kind of putting up the bat signal and sending a list of topics to everybody on my list. And then over those three weeks, we'd slowly get submissions back. Yeah. And I, while that's going on, you know, I would try to also be writing my own stuff. And, but and that was the the nice thing about it was you get to work with all these different people in this totally new context. And it, it, and also, you know, it would be very very hard for one person to write on their own because jokes are just different than speeches in that way where every line needs to be the best possible version of that line. Yeah. And it's all new. It's all original. So it was nice to have this thing be a team effort. Yeah, I imagine you're also probably getting like few versions around the same thing and then you can probably like piece together a joke and also just bounce off ideas because you're not, you can't, te- you can't road test the White House Correspondence Dinner. So. Exactly. It's one of the big, sometimes we talk with the headliners, you know, the, their writers would say, this is so weird. We don't get to do this. We don't get to do a dress rehearsal. Yeah. And for us, that as speech writers, I guess to some extent was a strength because we never got to do a dress rehearsal so we didn't expect one. Yeah. So you did, our general rule was, unless we are 95% certain this is going to be great, we're going to wait and try to get something even better. You, you mentioned Judd. I also saw that Stephen Colbert had pitched a joke. Do you, do you remember any jokes specifically Judd or Colbert or some other uh, big name type person pitched you? Well, uh, I, I remember there was one from 2013 and, and Judd and Lovett, I think, teamed up to write this where the president said, you know, uh, everyone wants to know. Why am why am I not doing more outreach to Congress? Why don't I? Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? <laughs> and I think uh, you know it's, it's jokes like that where the what I noticed was that speechwriters tend to be very precise about language, but professional comedy writers tend to bring attitude toward yeah. it in a different way. And so that was really helpful because we got to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. You're writing jokes for the president of the United States, and also this specific one, you know. You know, you've you've written jokes before that. You've written jokes since. Um, what is it like to write jokes for a president? Does it ever feel normal like you're just writing jokes for anybody? It definitely never felt normal to me. <laughs> sure. Maybe some people were like, oh, yeah, this is no big deal. I, I never crossed that threshold. I think the, the other thing that is um, very, very different about writing jokes for a president is that the next day, that person is still the president. So if you say something that crosses some... Uh, you know, is break some taboo or offend somebody or some t- 
terrible, tragic event happens that then makes your joke seem insensitive in retrospect, you're still on the hook for that. And it, generally speaking, joke writers are not the type to self-censor constantly. Um, but you kind of have to be thinking in that way yeah. to write jokes for a president, or at least to write jokes for for President Obama, who cared about that sort <laughs> yeah. of stuff. I mean, probably the most classic example was the I heard that there was a joke in the 2011 one where the punchline involved Osama. Little did anyone know, other than him, when he edited that he was about to like the the SEAL Team Six plan to kill Osama bin Laden was like about to happen. Yeah, I was I had just gotten to the White House in about four weeks earlier. So I was not like in the Oval Office going over jokes at that point. But I had sent that joke in where I was like, ah, I feel really good. This is an edgy joke. It's got the words bin Laden in it. <laughs> and then I got an email back where I learned that it had been cut. And I remember being really annoyed. I was like, you know, I may be like two years out of college, but I know I know what's funny. And then the next day was like, oh, OK, I get it. So, <laughs> yes. um, it was it was a moment when I really started to realize, OK, maybe this is uh, exactly as serious as people people tell me. You know, there there's uh, he has a certain persona in all of them, which is which is an interesting persona for a president to have. I wonder how you how would you would describe it? You know, like any every stand up has a certain sort of point of view. And like you watch all of them, you're like there's something that ties all of those uh, all of his White House correspondence together. How would you describe it? Do you think there is a way to kind of categorize it? Well, I think what is exciting about President Obama when he was doing these comedy monologues was not terribly different than him as a candidate when he gave that speech that made me decide I want to go to Ohio and work for him. It's this mix of a lot of confidence, but also a lot of intelligence and sort of a, a sense of audience. Yeah. And I think that is so that the way I always thought about it was and obviously I'm biased, but <laughs> the way I always thought about it was when I was when I was watching Obama speeches before I was working for on the speechwriting team that he could give the speech where it wasn't just that you thought oh Obama's great, but it made you feel really great. Yeah. And he had that sense of connection with the audience. And then on top of that, he has the sense of like, yeah, I'm pretty good and I know it. <laughs> yeah. And I think those two things combined are really that's really hard to pull off. Yeah. And it was really fun to write for somebody who can do both of those things. Yeah, that that's sort of and which is a very comedian stance that he has. Of, and it, there's the arrogance that he can pull off, you know, especially like everyone has a certain sort of he plays on the conspiracies. You know, there's like a certain sort of absurdity that his presidency had that I think is probably at least in my lifetime. I can't think of another presidency that felt so absurd in the way it was talked about. I mean, obviously now it's a whole nother thing, but, you know, how how deliberate were you guys like, oh, let's every time we got to hit birther, Muslim, socialist. Well, I, I don't think it was like we have to check. Yeah, it. it wasn't like we had a bingo card. that yeah, was yeah. like, all right, we, we've checked all the conspiracies. And there were so many conspiracies to choose from. But I do think there it was a moment to, through humor, be like, really, this is happening. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think about in, in 2012, John, one of John Lovett's jokes, which was, you know, I'm uh, this job has aged me. I look in the mirror and I think I'm not the strapping young Muslim socialist I used to be. Yeah. And I think that lines like that where, you know, it's not you can joke about it rather than complain about it or vent about it. And so it was a nice sort of release valve for you know, every, stuff was really annoying. It was yeah. just like well, there's a country to run and everybody knows this is ridiculous. Why are we dealing with this? So at what point are you involving the president? So usually what we would do is we would have these sort of topics, get all these submissions, bring everything together and try to, you know, so let's say six or seven hundred jokes total come in. 
then we end up with about 40. Yeah. And those 40, we would bring to the president. Some years we would bring them just as a list. Some years we would try to do a script and we would work with him to figure out, you know, basically he'd read through them, usually cut, let's say 10, then he just isn't liking that much for whatever reason. There's usually a few more where he'd say, this is pretty good, but maybe we can do better on this. And you sort of make a <laughs> sure. like, series of frantic notes next to that joke in the script. Yeah. And then you'd go back and we would usually do another at least two, sometimes three meetings. When you think of our kind of a writer's room mentality, it's, you have to you have to be willing to fail or you have to the writers have to feel comfortable to fail. Uh, Barack Obama is a, a, you know, a different type of boss to have in that case. Obviously, you were kind of already calling down to 40, but did you have certain big swings in there? Were you able, was he willing to allow you guys to push the envelope at least to him and then allow him to be like, that's not the envelope that I would like to open and read? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, he, the difference was we did the, the danger was not disappointing him. It was taking up his time. So if he's wasting five minutes reading jokes he doesn't like, that's five minutes that could be spent on like Afghanistan. I mean, that's that's what happened. Yeah. You know, that's the calculation you're making as a presidential speechwriter. The for him, it was never an issue of like always trying to scale us back. It was usually the opposite that he would read something and say, this is pretty good. But could we go a little edgier? Like, let's get a little sharper with this. Yeah. Those, those sharper and edgier were kind of his two big common notes. And so that was nice and liberating in a way where, generally speaking, you went back to your office feeling free to take an even bigger sure. swing. That's great. I mean, I imagine he knows exactly the line. You can only guess and hope, but it's easier for him to, t especially if that's what the rapport is, which he keeps on telling you to be like, no, you can keep on going. This is this is fine. Absolutely. And there were lines that we just wouldn't, we know, you know, if you cross that line, it's not going to make it into the script. So we wouldn't bring it to him. So, for example... Anything joking about something national security related isn't going in the speech. I mean, even if it's hilarious and even if it seems tame at the time, yeah. it's just not going to happen. So we wouldn't even bother bringing that to him. So, you know, obviously, I think this is probably a thing about all all White House correspondents, dinner, president speeches. There's a lot of self-deprecation that happens, but you're writing it. So essentially, you're writing a roast joke to the president. <laughs> What is it like to essentially like make, you know, like, you know, the things that are the things that you make fun of, but what is it still to be like, I'm now insulting the most powerful person in the world? Well, to be fair, it's not you reading. Yes. I, I think I would have. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. Because he doesn't know who wrote each joke. <laughs> that, yeah. And I think if I had in the way we would do it is we would give him the jokes and he'd read through them to see what he liked. If I had to read that to him, I think I might have had, you know, I might have just fainted on the couch. So uh, I do think that that made it a little bit easier. I will also say. To his credit, I mean, I have friends who are speechwriters who've written for, you know, senators or politicians who will remain nameless where they suggest something self-deprecating and, you know, they get their heads chopped off. <laughs> and the the politician will say, oh, self-deprecating, yeah, we definitely want to, I want to make fun of myself. But then the moment it happens, gets really mad. Yeah. And I think President Obama was confident enough in himself. He never felt the need. You know, he, he was like, OK, this is clearly funny. It serves a purpose. You know, they weren't necessarily his favorite jokes sure. of the entire script, but he didn't feel insulted by it. Th there's uh, certain jokes throughout, not not tons, but every once in a while there's jokes that are definitely play on uh, Obama's race, you know, and, and especially because it became a preoccupation of the opposition. Um, you know, there's a joke that I, I think you point out, which is uh, Republicans all agree they need to do a better job reaching out to minorities call me self-centered but i think i can think of one minority they should start with and he points himself or in 2016 had a cp time joke which was referencing bill de blasio's not great joke but i mean it's it's a dicey thing in general 
was that a thing that you were conscious of? Was it a delicate situation? Did you have to make sure the joke really kind of made sense of what the point of it was? Yeah, I mean, for, for jokes about race, you know, obviously those are always sensitive. And because it was such a flashpoint in the Obama years, that was something that we had to be careful about. But it was also gradually, I think, over those eight years or eight correspondence dinners, we felt a little bit looser because I think the president felt more comfortable yeah. telling some hard truths. Again, both in more importantly, in the serious side of his job, but also one night only, you know, when he <laughs> yeah. was telling some jokes, that was reflected in the jokes that he told. Yeah. And also part of it was being careful in the sense that, you know, I am not African-American and writing, you know, the be true for writing jokes of anyone of a different race about race. It's like, uh, I want to be really sure this is going to have the intended effect. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Okay, now it's time for the mid-show ad crashing recap. Uh, this is the season finale and also the last recap of our good one season. So uh, so here's the recap. All right. Open our hero, Pete Holmes, sitting at Artie Lang's kitchen table, alone, drunk, drinking what looks like strawberry Mike's Hard Lemonade, but it might be pomegranate Mike's Hard Lemonade. Doesn't matter. Just assume it tastes like red and teenage hangovers. Into the room walks Artie, who is instantly very scared, as he had no idea a giant homeless comedian would be there drinking what is essentially as someone left a Jolly Rancher in a bottle of rubbing alcohol. They get into a fight. The particulars of, uh, you know, I I won't get into. Just know it results in them eating breakfast uh, at at a strip club. You know, we've seen Pete literally being uncomfortable, like, everywhere he goes. So guess what he was like getting a lap dance? Okay, did you have time to guess? Yeah, you're exactly right. He's not very good at it. He, he literally uh, tries to take the high road in a way that deeply offends the stripper. Apparently, people don't like being told they're being degraded to their face. Then the stripper's like, I'm being degraded. You're the comedian, which is a pretty sick burn. It burns so bad, Pete's like, I need to go to a baptism because, you know, because there's there's water at baptism for the, the burn part. But he actually has to go to a baptism because his, his friend is getting baptized. At the baptism, Pete and Artie, they go kind of separate ways. So I'll, I'll summarize their parts separately. You know, all you need to know about Artie is he meets a nice woman who, like Artie, is in AA, and she tries to explain the meaning of life to him, and, you know, it's very nice. But Pete, Pete's time is not as nice. So Pete then hangs out with the pastor, who says he'll say a prayer for Pete, but it's less a prayer and more like a he-said-she-said recap of the first season of Crashing. And at the end, the pastor straight up calls Pete a cuck, and Pete is like, yes, that is me. Speaking of Pete being a cuck, Jess, Pete's ex-wife, is there, and she's like, Leaf and I broke up because Leaf wouldn't leave his intense wife for me. And Pete's like, I'm sorry, but you can tell he's thinking, maybe old Petey has a chance now. Then the pastor tells everyone to go on a silent walk, which Pete, because he's a comedian, uses it to scream sing at plants. If a comedian sings in the forest and no one hears him, did he ever really sing? If you ask that comedian, no. But what's that? Pete stops singing to hear Jess is screaming, so he runs over and leaves there with pigtails. And that's not why she screamed. That's just kind of unrelated to the fact. But, it, you know, it's good to know for, you know, detail. Uh, and then Leaf and Jess have this big fight, and Pete is there for it. And he probably shouldn't be, but, you know, it's his show, so he gets to be in all the scenes. But then a bell rings, and it's time for the baptism, so the fight ends. The pastor talks about God and how God forgives and idyllic music plays and all the characters are looking like, hmm, maybe God would forgive me. And then Jess finally wins or or loses the game of interrupting a baptism chicken and rushes to the pool cross thing and demands to be dipped. But then Leaf also runs into the pool cross thing and goes, no, forget about Jesus because I am God and you are God and together we make, you know, more God. 
But then Pete runs in because he's like, what if Pete was the one asking to be loved? And then Pete tells Jess, I'll quit comedy. But then Leaf tells Jess, what about us moving to Tampa? And despite those two great offers, Jess chooses Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Cuts to Pete and Leaf sharing a hotel bed. Leaf is eating french fries with his feet and says that his brother will wire him money to pay for the room as he's a big Bitcoin guy. It's hard to tell which is grosser. Leaf tells Pete he is so excited for their budding friendship. Pete is not. The end. Well, that'll do it for season one of Crashing. The show will be back for a second season, but until then, you can catch up on season one on HBO Go and HBO Now. Okay, we're back with David Litt. All right, so let's talk about Luther. Keegan-Michael Key doing his anger translator uh, character from Key and Peele. So the character had been around for, I guess, three years at this point, but and, and Obama has already said he he liked him. So what was kind of the, the germ of the idea to make it happen in 2015? So a lot of it was just timing. We wanted to do this every year. I think when I – the first year I sort of was responsible for the joke writing process was 2012, and I think even then – we sort of said, should we get Luther the anger translator? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And then we thought about it and we said, this is an election year. Maybe we don't want to risk it. And then in 2013, it didn't really feel right. And then in 2014, it didn't feel right. And then in 2015, we had this attitude of, all right, we're just going for it. You know, it's the fourth quarter of the presidency. We don't care anymore. This that's That was the big national story. This like Obama's liberated. He's doing whatever he wants. So this seems like the perfect time to do it. And it also was just a moment when we ha- couldn't ha- come up with anything else <laughs> for a big set piece. Like I had, I had pitched uh, an idea um, that was called uh, Devito, which involved we we didn't have we he had not agreed to do this, but we were like we will find Danny Devito and we will get him to dress up in a purple leotard and a purple cape with a big stamp that says Devito and veto bills. And I was like, this is an amazing idea. This is comedy <laughs> gold. And then I sent it to our sort of comedy brain trust, and everyone agreed it was not. And so uh, we were kind of casting about looking for something that made sense. And then that perennial question, what if we got Luther involved, came up and suddenly it was like, oh, OK, this this is the year. So then everyone's like, of course. And then because you're working for Barack Obama, everyone says yes Im- immediately. Like, what's the process of then? OK, so that's probably th- three weeks out, two weeks out. Yeah, what's... That, that came together fast, actually, probably 10 days. I mean, it, we were... That that was at the point where we were just beginning to get a little desperate. So, so all right. So ten days out, you decide, okay, do it. So then, how does the ball start rolling? So I had actually met briefly uh, Keegan Michael Key because he had met the president um, along with Jordan Peele years earlier. They got invited to a holiday party, and I had just been wandering around. I happened to meet him and say, you know, hey, I'm a huge fan of your show. And so I had his email from that, and and in the back of my mind said, in case we ever decide we want to follow through on this Luther thing, it would be good to not have to just try to figure out how to reach him. So they already kind of knew it. It could. I mean, I think they probably. They must have hoped, right? Yeah. I, think, I, I don't know. Um, I, and I think there was, you know, th- they knew that the president was a fan of the show and like the character. So uh, once that happened, I just kind of reached out and said, hey, remember that, you know, weird guy who accosted you at that holiday party? Um, are you interested in doing this with the president of the United States. It's not surprising that the answer was yes. And most people would say yes to something like that. Although, you know, I think at the time Keegan was shooting a movie. It was like he had to get up at, you know, it was like filming, got up at 4 a.m. And like, yeah. So those kind of things didn't always come fall into place just because, you know, people are really busy and they have work commitments. But in this case, he made it work. And 
um, you know, barely was able to get a flight and got in that morning. Uh, so what was the process of uh, actually then writing it once he agreed to do it? So I had assumed that uh, Keegan and, and their team would just be like, OK, we'll we're, we'll handle this from here. Yeah. But he was like, no, why don't you guys do it? So, <laughs> so we thought, OK, yeah. So now it's kind of trying to, to to write for both. You know, you're used to writing in the president's voice, but then also this voice of a character you really enjoy, but you've never written for. So I kind of did the best I could, you know, and wrote a, a draft. And then I sent that to some of our sort of most trusted comedy people. So like John Lovett, who used to run the Correspondence Dinners when he was at the White House, he punched stuff up from Los Angeles. Um, you know, I think uh, Cody Keenan, the chief speech writer, my boss. So everyone kind of took a stab at it. We sent it back to, Ke- to Keegan. He made some edits and so on. And they, you know, kind of went through that whole process. And then I think it must have been about three to four days before the speech, the president knew we were going to do it. He was excited, but he hadn't seen the script. So then we brought that in, and uh, and he took a look at it for the first time. I think I had heard Jordan Peele interview, and he explained why he wasn't a part of it, which is essentially like it didn't make sense to him what the sketch would be. Were there kind of different ways you were conceptualizing where they're like, oh, there'd be two presidents? Because like, I, yeah, because I, I think Peele was like, he made it seem like he was like an instant no because it didn't make sense to him, but I didn't know on your part if you were thinking about a way that maybe would involve both of them. We thought about it in the sense that, you know, this is their show and obviously it's a big moment um, and it's exciting to do something with the president. So how can we make this work for everybody? And when we talked to Keegan about that also and said, you know, maybe there's a way to have uh, Jordan Peele come in and his doing his Obama impression. And I think behind the scenes, they worked it out that it just didn't make sense. Um, and I think, you know, what, what uh, I've heard Keegan say since is that Jordan was just really gracious about it and realized this doesn't this isn't the right moment to have two Obamas suddenly. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah, that's not the joke. Yeah. Um, so we would have tried to make it work. But I think it was one of those moments where for the comedy of it, it definitely worked out better the way that we had it. Yeah. And the kind of two presidents thing has had been done. I know at least Bush did the two presidents thing. Yeah. Bush, it, the, the second Bush. We had always talked about, you know, do we want to do an Obama impersonator? Um, or something like that, because it comes up pretty frequently. And I think everybody who liked writing jokes bristled at that because it feels like cheating in some ways. <laughs> yeah. like, then the president doesn't really have to do a lot. Yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, we would have been happy to have Jordan Peele, obviously, as part of the skit. But we were not like chomping at the bit to get an Obama impersonator on stage. Structurally, what was interesting, because I, I remember I saw it when it happened, but then because I had been watching them all in a row, which was you have him essentially like do the remarks he usually reads straight anyway, which was just like a good conceit because it also allowed you to get those remarks, which are always are such a weird left turn Yeah, in a way that is also still funny. Do you remember how you were trying to figure out what would Obama be doing during that time? Well, that was part of it. We just said, you know, we're sitting down thinking about the script and normally in a speech, um, for, we would call that like a serious close to the speech where it's like we've done 12 minutes of jokes and now let me talk about the importance of a free press with no jokes whatsoever. As you said, it's a little weird. And so we were already trying to figure out what's Luther going to say. It just seemed like let's let's only have one problem to solve. Yeah. And let's just have <laughs> POTUS continue to do the things that he would normally do. Yeah. And and then I think once once we saw that, it, it made sense also from the from the comedy perspective of like that way he gets to really play the straight man. Yeah. So then what's the rehearsal process like? So the rehearsal process is pretty abbreviated <laughs> yeah. for, for something like this. So uh, the president read through the lines with us 
um, once or twice before. So, so like you're playing Luther? No, he would do. I think he'd <laughs> you do, do both. both. Yeah, and I think he actually like. I think he kind of liked yeah. the chance to be in the room playing Luther a little bit. Yeah. So, he, um, so he enjoyed that. We did that twice, and he would make small notes or whatever. But that was, you know, Thursday, Friday, something like that. Saturday, the day of the dinner, we really only had twenty minutes to get it right, and so we at about four o'clock smuggled Keegan into the West Wing, you know, making sure that we no journalists would see him. <laughs> and then around six, we figured, okay, the journalists have all left. They're going to their parties. We can we can bring them out. And so we brought him over to the map room, which is like one of the rooms in the residence. It has all these World War II maps and like these old, you know, fan- fancy like colonial maps. And we had the, you know, set up with a podium and the president came in and just we, we just started, and I think we had about twenty minutes. We did two run throughs, yeah. so we did it once, and then briefly they made a couple of notes, and then we did it again, and then that's it. You get in the motorcade, and and you go. So uh, it, was, it was fast. Now is it on on you to give the president notes if his performance is kind of off? It is, but for the most part, uh, you know, you you're careful with stuff like that because you don't want to act like he's an actor. I mean, his job is to be the president, and he happens to be. They're telling jokes. So if something had been wildly off, it would have been my job to say, you know, Mr. President, uh, actually, this this is really going to not work. So if we do it this way, if it's like, oh, this word could be slightly funnier if you, you know, really hit that last, you know, whatever, that last word in a joke rather than the first word. Uh, I, that's a point where you kind of keep your mouth shut and say he's got other things to worry about. <laughs> that is so that is that that is that is it's just fairly interesting to me that you would just be like, I can't talk to there's a certain sort of air that that job has where they can take he doesn't want to be embarrassed and he's helpful. But if it's something that like that seems maybe petty to him, he you don't want to be like he's like, why am I even doing this? <laughs> right. I think that was actually one of Luther's first lines. Like, why am I required yeah. to be at this dinner? So um, I, I think there was you have to recognize that he wants to do well. But at the same time, of all the things on his presidency that I'm sure, you know, President Obama is proud of looking back. This is probably not, you know, on the top 10 and probably not on the top 100. Right? <laughs> yeah. and that, that's OK. Were there specific beats that you kind of jumped out of you immediately when you were scripting it? You know, there's certain basically it, it really is a perfect setup for types of jokes. But do you remember things that you're kind of excited to do or try to work hard to try to figure out? The thing that uh, I was really excited about was actually making sure we could build in the twist at the end where yeah. the president gets really angry. And that to me was fun, both because I felt like it would be fun for him but also because when I – this goes back to your other question about the president's time and making the most of it. These things are not political, but I figured if there is a moment to talk about something real, then how do we make it worth our while? And so in this case, we're talking about climate change deniers in Congress. To be able to let POTUS get really angry in a way he probably would in private about all this craziness um, and then also – uh, help answer the question, why is this different than yeah. the same Luther, the anger translator skits that we see on TV? Yeah. Um, to do both of those things, that seemed really important to me to find a way to make that work. Yeah, that was, it really is an, an amazing thing to watch because that is a twist on how the sketches end because usually the sketch, the Keen Peel sketches will end where Luther gets too big, right? So, and then this is obviously, it switches and I was like, I don't think I've ever heard Barack Obama talk this way. <laughs> And maybe he did, but I can't think of any speech where he was that, you know, because he's playing a part. So we all allowed it. But like you look at a vacuum like that might have been like the angriest he 
put on. I'm almost sure that in public, you know, and and obviously he's playing a character, even though that character is himself. But that's probably the most angry he got. Um, And and I think that that is, you know, one of the reasons why he was excited about doing it. It was was a chance to let loose a little bit. I'm going to run through some of the jokes and we'll see if you have any opinions on them. But you can just keep on passing. I just because there really is a lot of really strong jokes in it. When Obama goes, oh, the joke is like uh, the court ruled that donating $6 million is free speech. And then Luther goes, a speech like, on Ted Cruz is, is free speech. And they're like, a speech like I just wasted $6 million. Do you remember anything about that joke? Yeah, I mean, I remember wanting to write about serious stuff and get to yeah. have Luther kind of talk <laughs> yeah. about how ridiculous Oh, it's was. interesting because I didn't even think about that. This was also an outlet for you guys to write in a way that you didn't really get. Yeah, th- this was, I mean, we sort of, I think euphemistically called it truth-telling with yeah. these, some of these jokes. But it's a way of saying, you know, the, the court actually ruled that Ted Cruz can get six million bucks in a super PAC and that's good for democracy. This is insane. Yeah. And it was a chance to say that without having to do it in a presidential way. And so... Um, writing the president's lines, what I thought about was what would he actually be saying when he's talking about the importance of democracy and then getting to play off of that. So that was, uh, you know, it was fun to to get to try to keep it serious in that way. There's a joke about how there's a climate change and there's a drought in California. Essentially, the punchline is, why do you think you think Bradley Cooper's here to meet Chuck Todd? And I feel like there's multiple times where Chuck Todd is the subject of a Barack Obama joke. <laughs> do you feel like Chuck Todd is a certain sort of like perfect of the sort of not Fox News easy targets? But there's something like really funny about Chuck Todd as a concept. I don't you know, this is making me embarrassed because I can think of that joke and another Chuck Todd joke that I wrote for. <laughs> and it's not like I mean, I like Chuck Todd. He's a good journalist and I've never met him in person. So I don't know what the uh, you know, maybe there's something deep in my psyche. That is a funny sounding name. I think it's a funny sounding. I actually think that's right. So I think it's a funny sounding name. It's that he is it's actually because he is sort of well regarded as a very classic, you know, unbiased, balanced, like Mm -hmm. ask tough questions, nod in a serious manner journalist that he doesn't have a lot of other conceptions. So between those two things, right, lots of (laughs) like a good sounding name and a reputation as a kind of like. Run a you know, like um, well, it's a neutral. It's essentially like the right. joke. If if the joke is not about Chuck Todd, you need a filler of journalist, right? And everyone knows who Chuck Todd is. It sounds funny. It's and people are like, wait, is this joke kind of about this? They're like, no, it's just a joke about right. this. And and Chuck Todd's interesting because he is somebody who is well known, but he's not known as as a personality. Yeah. He's he is well known yeah. because he's a journalist. He's a he's a classic good specific. And then there's the the Hiller joke, which is the big Khaleesi's coming to Westeros thing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that that was John Lovett's line. I loved that, and that was uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have other, that much to say about yeah. it other than that when he emailed me with that that line in there, I was just like, "This is amazing. <laughs> this is such a good joke." It's also just like performance wise was like a perfect thing for that character to like take on. Yeah, it was it was perfect, and it was just. And it was also at that moment in the Hillary campaign where it made perfect sense. I mean, yeah. you know, that was a million years ago, but it, it was uh, it just seemed so right in that yeah. moment. You know, I, I generally think of Keen Peel as a Nicole of sketch craftsmanship. Like, I, I think it's the best of in terms of the writing of sketches. You know, what did you learn by sort of being inside one of their, you know, sketch formats, I guess you would say? I think... 
one of the things that I, I learned was um, the you know, the writing of it didn't surprise me that it was hard and that there you know that that it was more complicated than just writing for a president you know these things were yeah i was not surprised to learn that um i do think it was watching the difference between what we had on paper and then what keegan did where uh i think there's an old steve martin line about how he sort of learned to be funny with every part of his body and you know, you write jokes for the president, you feel really good about yourself, you kind of like, oh, I must be great. Yeah. But then you watch someone like that do what they do on stage, and you realize how many other things are involved in every moment to, to bring out every element of humor in that beat. Yeah. And that was really cool to watch. It was, it was also one of those, like, regular reminders of why when I was in, in high school, like, I, you know, auditioned for plays and never got in. I was like, oh, yeah, because people like that were really, really good. Yeah. Do you remember the response in the room to the joke or anyone in particular who enjoyed it? Yeah. I mean, what I remember was the first moment Luther walked out on stage and he was, Keegan was really milking every single step. And you could see that like a third of the people in the room were like, oh, my God, this is happening. <laughs> I dreamed of this moment. Yeah. And then a third of the people in the room were like, I'm not sure about this. This could be a good idea. could not be a good idea. And a third of the people in the room were like, who is this guy and what is going on? Because the Correspondence Center audience runs the gamut. It's got a lot of Hollywood people, but it also has a lot of like journalists who may or may not have any idea what Key and Peele is. And so there was just this weird tension. But then, and I think it took a couple of lines for that tension to break. And then I think... Once people realized what was happening and felt like, oh, we're in the middle of something that hasn't happened before and this is kind of special, then you started to see people really get excited about it. And I think actually at the very end, when the president got really upset about climate change deniers and you know <laughs> Luther's trying to calm him down, but he can't do it, there were was a moment where there were a lot of people on their feet, both because they liked what they had just seen and they enjoyed it, but also because they felt like it had kind of done this bank shot where now we're talking about something real. And so it was nice to to see that. So and it kind of we we talked about a little bit and it's the first thing that Luther addresses and it's a question I kind of wanted to to kind of ask you is is you know why? You know, to you what's the point of this event existing or what's the point of a president doing this? So to me the the reason that it's important that a president does something like this is because there's this relationship that we have between the press and the president and the country. And everybody, every president thinks the press is unfair. And the press always thinks the president doesn't give them enough access and is trying to keep them from doing their jobs. And that's just the way it is. But on this one night, everyone sort of says, in our own way, each of us is important to democracy. And so that's one important element of it. To me, the other important thing is it's a chance for the, the most powerful person on earth to tell some jokes and tell usually some jokes at their own expense. So we would have millions of people watch these things on YouTube, not just in the United States, but in countries like China, where the idea that your leader would tell a joke or acknowledge a vulnerability or be anything other than this kind of uh, almost like a demigod totally blew people's minds, just the fact that he was up there telling jokes. And so I think that was um, something that was really exciting about the Correspondence Dinners. Writing aside, just this moment where we got to say, the president of the United States is going to acknowledge, hey, I'm only human. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, we're all here to laugh. 
That's that is really profound. Um, so we met almost like the entirety of the conversation before talking about uh, the current president and who he is. And but I do want to talk about it. You know, what was your initial reaction and kind of current feeling about the fact that uh, uh, President Trump has decided not to attend the correspondence dinner? Well, the way I think about it is it's not so much that it's a bad decision. I think Donald Trump is a bad person, and that is reflected in his decision making. And I I don't say that lightly. Like, I'm not the guy. I don't say that a lot of people are bad people. But I just think in this case, and I think that what, what I mean by that is he does not understand the value of a free press. He doesn't understand the value of being able to joke about yourself or admit that it's a democracy I'm I'm the president, I'm the leader, but I'm also just a citizen and I work for you, not the other way around. And so I think all of that all of that together makes him say, why would I go to an event like this not as a joke but for real? Say, you know, these people are out to get me. I'm not going to be adored and loved unconditionally. I'm going to have to earn it, so I'm just going to skip it. And that I think is is a real shame and I also think it sends a bad message. Not in, you know, it's not the worst message he sent. But I don't think it's it's a good message to other countries where I think it was a chance for us to show that you can be more powerful than your, you know, second rate dictator and more human. Um, and instead, we're sort of saying maybe that's not a possibility. The other I don't know. Did you see the Al Smith dinner? The um, yes, with the right before the election. Yeah. So Hillary and, and Trump both told jokes, which was the whole thing was maybe <laughs> that event was one they should have canceled. Yeah. But. It was also that he didn't do very well. I mean, he he had one good joke that was at his wife's expense and everything else was like he got booed in the room. And, and I, I wrote jokes for President Obama at the Al Smith dinner where they weren't I don't think a lot of them necessarily voted for him. It's hard to not get some polite applause in that room. Yeah. And so I think that experience of be of the elite of the media world, the New York world, the finance world all booing him. I think he got a little skittish about what's going to happen if I show up at the Correspondence Center. That felt so much like watching a comedian who does one type of room over and over again and then goes to a different space and does all their tricks. And that audience being like, I, it, you know, it's a classic Bob. It's yeah. like a classic because he was going on the road and destroying. Right. <laughs> and he goes totally there and be right. like, don't you guys know I've been destroying? Yeah. Oh, Hillary hates Catholics, kills. Yeah. And people are like, that's, no. Yeah, it's just like, this is not, not for us. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was, it, it, was I mean, I, though watching that, you, it, that's why I wasn't surprised. Because I can, like, he couldn't do it. One, it wouldn't make no sense with everything else we know about him. And he has such a cognitive dissonance about him doing things wrong. And there's no way he would have succeeded. Right. You know, on a on a personal level, this is this is this was a very specific job with a very you know specific consequences of like how these jokes played and and audience. You know, you did it and you did it for a, a five years. You know, you know what did you learn about yourself as a comedy writer from doing it? You know, what did you learn what you wanted to do with comedy from doing it? I think what I learned that uh, hadn't totally been expected at the beginning was there's a way to use comedy to bring attention to stuff that you wouldn't otherwise notice. And so um, whether that was in the Luther thing with climate change, whether that was uh, something I didn't write, but I, I sort of saw come together the um, between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis about, uh, and President Obama about healthcare, yeah. there were these moments when suddenly it's not that comedy saved the world or anything close to that, but that 
comedy could be really funny and also be about something serious and have some impact just in terms of focusing people's attention where it ought to be focused. And so to me, that was very exciting um, to to realize that that was doable. Uh, I, I think I've always kind of bounced between I'm either like the sort of funny, serious guy at my job or I'm like the serious, funny guy at my job. And so I wasn't surprised to find myself kind of in one of those two two modes. Yeah. So then, you know, you you since transitioned to working at Funny or Die. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what you're doing there and, and how it's been going? Because I, I know, was it right when Obama left or did you were you doing it kind of both or did you leave so, after the White House Correspondence Center in 2016? I actually left in 2000, early 2016, before the Correspondence oh, cool. Center. So that last one... Um, I got to sort of just watch from the outside, which was fun. The I started working with Funny or Die. We have a very, very small DC office. It's just two people. And so I'm one half of it. <laughs> and the way this came about was that uh, Brad, our executive producer, was the guy at the White House who kind of helped do all the wrangling from the White House side while Between Two Ferns was taking place. And uh, he did sort of celebrity outreach at the White House, which if you ever work in the White House, that's a very good job. You should get that job. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what they, I think, wanted was somebody who also understood a little bit of the creative side, who could kind of speak joke writer in L.A., but also speak policy person in D.C. to do some of that. And so I came on as their head writer and um, we work together with, you know, clients who are generally speaking, sort of somewhere in the make the world a better place universe, right? So that could be anything from the American Heart Association to the League of Conservation Voters. We did our own big thing um, trying to get out the vote in 2016 with young people. We did a comedy tour to register voters in uh, California. We did, we teamed up with Planned Parenthood to do the official after party to the Women's March where we helped bring Mm -hmm. the talent in and then all the money that we uh, raised, you know, it all went to Planned Parenthood. All of which is to say we have a chance to do this, exactly what you're talking about, where we're taking causes that need attention and comedy that's really good at getting attention and starting a conversation and combining them. And so it's been really rewarding. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's like a, a lightning round. But, but with it's laughing. Com- yeah, because it's comedy. It's, it's laughing round. Oh, that's pretty good. Thank you. If you could write a joke for any president ever... Uh, who would it be? And I'm not going to demand you on the spot to think of a joke for an old president, but, you know, what do you think the joke would be about? I don't know what the joke would be about, and I know that it's totally cliche to say Lincoln, but I would absolutely want to write a joke for Lincoln because I think he was one of our funniest presidents, probably Reagan, Lincoln, and Obama, possibly Bill Clinton in in the conversation as well. But Lincoln was a very funny guy, and... and, um, he would the the cabinet meeting when he was going to unveil the Emancipation Proclamation. He kicked it off by reading this like funny short story <laughs> to his cabinet, and they were like, "What is this guy doing?" And it's some it's, you know the equivalent of like a David Sedaris piece. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I totally violated the spirit of the laughing round, so we can redo that question. No, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> you probably would make fun of his beard. That's yes, what I would write about. <laughs> yeah, the beard and top hat jokes. I feel like I would want to write a joke for LBJ just because he seems to be the most willing to say inappropriate words. Yeah, I do think that <laughs> you could really go blue with, yeah. with some LBJ material. You know, you did it for a few years. Was there a target, you know, a specific person who was the best at laughing at jokes about themselves? 
I think there are some people who just really want to be mentioned and are you know, they realize to hear their name is very exciting. So I think generally like the CNN table, you know, they're if if you're like making fun of CNN, they're a little annoyed, but they're also like, OK, good. I got a <laughs> Yeah, I got our shout out. You know, the I president think still knows we exist. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's uh, and I, th- I think they recognize that it, it does them good to be made fun of by the president. Do you remember Obama's absolute favorite or 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 and or absolute least favorite joke you wrote for him? Uh, I don't remember his absolute least favorite. Maybe that's selective memory. I think the the joke that I wrote that at least I appreciated that he liked the most was one that you alluded to before, where in 2013 he said, uh, you know, Republicans all agree they need to do a better job of reaching out to minorities. Call me self-centered, but I can think of one minority they should start with. Yeah. And and that was fun because he, he liked that enough that he was like, all right, I'm going to might add a little, uh, you know, I might do a little do a little wave in there. <laughs> and I think he ad-libbed something. He was like, think of me as a trial run. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun when he would play off something like that. Um, do you remember a joke from um, the comedians that did that your favorite joke from any of the comedians that did it? Yeah. Uh, that Seth Meyers joke from 2011 where he said, you know, Donald Trump says, yeah. Uh, he has a great relationship with the blacks, unless the blacks are a family of white people. He's mistaken. Yeah, that, I, that is my. That's also Seth's favorite joke. Oh, is it? He's like it's the favorite joke I've ever told. It, I mean, it's such a good, it's such a good joke. And it, I, I was just sitting in like the cheap seats at the dinner, listening to that, and it's this moment where it's like, it's hilarious, and also you just want to bottle it. And like, yeah, it's great. All those Trump jokes he does are very good, but that's like kind of the first joke is like. Uh, uh, Trump says he's going to run as Republican. That's funny. I thought he's running as a joke, which yeah. is like a fine, but like pretty monologue joke. And he uh, he he wasn't going to do it. He said, and then Neil Brennan was like, "You have to do that's that." That's an amazing joke. <laughs> uh, a joke that's kind of like that one um, that Rachel Sklar, who who lives here in New York and does a, um, she's a blogger, and she wrote that that joke that was uh, congressional Republicans are giving. John Boehner an even hard t- harder time than they're giving me. I guess Orange really is the new black. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a similar joke for uh, that the president told. Where I just I thought it was hilarious, but it's also just like you kind of just want to like pick it apart and yeah. examine it. It's such it a was. Good uh, joke. I remember we were watching. I was like, that really did come together. Yeah. <laughs> is there a joke that you always thought was funny, or or an idea that you always thought was funny that uh, you never could get on? even get to a Brock. Like you had an idea and I was like, that's terrible. But you still think that's a really good joke? Uh, I don't know if, I I think I may have been convinced it's not a really good joke, but the one that I always wrote every year to see if people wouldn't notice that I'd already written it was something that was like, uh, you know, I think no matter what else happens, I'm going to go down in history as America's first black president. (laughs) And I think that just, like every year I tried it and every year no one liked it. And But you know, there's a certain point and this is the thing about being a speechwriter you you just you have to be accepting of the fact that you get to write for the president, which is amazing, but they're not your words. You can't be that precious about it. So you may think it's great, but if like the world doesn't seem to agree, you're you know you you, you drop it. I'm so mad. That's a very good joke. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad you like it. I'm glad we could save it for the laughing round. That's it for this week's episode of Good One. David Litt's memoir, Thanks Obama, about his time writing for the president is out in September and is currently available for pre-order on Amazon. You can follow him on Twitter, at David Litt. Good One is produced by Jordan Bell, with production help from Evan Viola and Kristen Meinzer. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. 
I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Thank you for listening to season one. We will be back very soon with more jokes. Have a good one.